At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm comfortable getting to the point where they can push me till I pass out or they kill me or something, but I'll be damned if I quit. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a special guest today, Brandon Doherty. Um, you've got a lot going on. Former PJ, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I'm actually still currently a reservist. So uh, I guess former PJ, but still kind of hanging in there on the weekends. Great. Um, and you run a company uh, that I don't think a lot of people have heard of, to be honest, but you do a lot of cool, like super cool shit operator solutions, but we'll get into that later. Uh, first, let's talk about how you got started in the Air Force. Like, how, uh, what was it? What was it that made you join in the first place? Yeah, so there's probably a lot of people around my age group. I'm 40 years old that um, were, you know, either in high school or getting ready to graduate around the time the towers fell, and that was certainly the case for me. I was you know, in a little podunk high school and didn't really have a lot going on. It was kind of low, you know, bottom of my class, I guess I'd say. And I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated. Um, had an older brother that uh, joined the Marine Corps. The towers fell when I was a um, junior in high school. And uh, so at that point, I decided I wanted to serve my country. And um, I asked my older brother, who was a Marine, you know what what i should do and he uh he was you know stuck in like some really shitty area in kuwait or something and he says hey man uh whatever you do um you know don't don't join the marine corps he's like he's like join the air force man i love you you know i want you to i want the best for you and these air force guys got it made so i uh, joined the air force so i went to the recruiter and i asked him you know hey i'm kind of competitive my brother's about a year year and a half older than me I said, what what job do you have where, uh, you know, I could kind of hang in there with my brother and he's not going to laugh at me. And so the recruiter told me, well, you can you can be an Air Force PJ, but, you know, you probably won't make it. So uh, but you could try for it. So at that point, I kind of had the goal set that I wanted to uh, not just serve my country, but I wanted to become a PJ, start doing some research on it. And it, it fell right in line you know, with uh, my background, I was I was a swimmer in, in high school and an athlete, and so I wanted to give it a shot. So that's kind of how I got started initially and why I decided to, to join the military and also why I joined the Air Force to become a PJ. Mm. Um, for our uh, non-Air Force audience, tell us what a PJ is. Yeah, so pararescue, man, it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, a lot of people don't know what PJs are. 
Um, an Air Force PJ is is more than a medic. I tell people they're more like a professional problem solver. So by history, we we're the we're the team that goes in behind enemy lines and go gets fighter pilots that were shot down anywhere in the world. That realistically, it, it's expanded to really using some of our skill sets to be able to rescue anybody in any precarious situation anywhere in the world. So um, every PJ is a is an is a paramedic. Uh, they're also uh, free fall parachutist, static line parachutist, uh, trained in rescue, trained in uh, you know tactics and uh, helicopter operations, aircraft operations. Uh, they're all combat divers. So very extensive skill set and kind of go by the, you know, um, uh, I guess I would say the uh, mantra of, uh, you know, we kind of do everything, but we're not really masters at any one single discipline. What I would say is that we're trained to really think outside the box and approach very precarious situations in, in, in a different way. We typically operate in very small teams, very selective process to get through the pipeline. It takes most people uh, 18 months to three years to get through the pipeline of schools. And once you once you get in, it's uh, it's, it's it's a pretty kick-ass job. There's only about 500 PJs in the whole world. That's why most people don't know about us. But uh, our we do fall under um, Air Force Special Warfare. And there's a couple different um, avenues you can go down, whether you go down the Air Force Special Operations Command route or you go through the traditional rescue route. Um, I personally went through the the rescue route and it's um it's 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 served me pretty well throughout my career yeah you know it's one of the more i in my opinion one of the more interesting jobs out there because you know i've i have a lot of friends who started their service in the 90s even in the soft community and uh the the aside from the soft guys most dudes didn't deploy at all there's there's like some People with 82nd, 3rd ID that spent some time in the Balkans, I guess. Um, and then if the guy was around long enough, maybe Gulf 1 or something like that. But that, that person would be getting ready to get out by now. Um, <clears throat> or would have been out for some time by now. Um, but PJs are an MOS that even before the GWAT were pretty... I mean, that, that you, you are pretty... You expect to go somewhere on a semi-regular basis. One, because of the mission. And then two, because like you said, there's not that many of them. Uh, there's 500 now, but I don't think there were 500 in the 90s. I think it was quite a bit less, like 300, if I'm not, not mistaken. Yeah, so I joined in 02, and when I came in, I actually was under AFSOC initially, and, and there was maybe maybe three 300 mm. you know, days out there. Only a handful of bases that we really operate out of. And like I said, we typically operate out of really small teams, so there's not a lot of us. But it's kind of the hidden secret in the military, honestly, because um, you get paid really well. You get all the uh, special duty pays and uh, they, you know, throw a lot of big reenlistment bonuses at you and stuff like that to keep you in because they've invested a lot of money in you. And it's been a really tough selection to get to get you all, all the way uh, you know, to the point um, where you actually graduate. But you also get like the most kick ass TDYs. And uh, and so it, it turns out to be pretty cool. And you're always kind of in the action. So. Um, the unique thing, I guess, about PJs is that you, you never really get to plan what the mission is. Now, there are some teams that you can attach to, like um, I'm sure you maybe have worked with some PJs that are attached mm -hmm. to, you know, some of the assaulter teams, and they can pre-plan their missions. But for a guy like me who is, you know, traditional rescue, 
um, kind of just sitting alert and waiting for something bad to happen. And then you just have to react to it. So uh, it's 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 pretty exciting, but you're never really fighting on your terms. You're kind of fighting on the enemy's terms and you're going in with limited information and you just got to got to figure it out on the fly and, uh, you know, uh, make something miraculous happen. And, you know, we, we live by the model that others may live. So mm. constantly putting ourselves out there and uh, and just trying to trying to bring our warfighters home. Yeah, I mean it's uh, that others may live is the is the the core mantra the the motto I suppose of PJs. I just talked to uh, CZ about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's one of the it, it I, I it's one of the few career fields. It may be the only one actually. I don't I don't know for sure about this, but it may be the only one where you're both in the fight, exposed to violence on a regular basis, but also the entire job is kind of based around service to your peers in one way or another. I guess you could say that the line medic and and infantry platoons and shit like that is similar. Um, but you know, that's like day-to-day maintenance. You're, you're part of the unit there, right? You're, you're working with the same guys every day. PJs are, uh, I mean, it's like the ultimate, uh, 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 quick reaction for us. Right. But when shit goes completely sideways, um, and I wonder if there isn't something in the pipeline because it is you, the the pipeline for AFSOC and special forces and some of these other uh, groups, as opposed to like uh, regular infantry or airborne infantry, like I was, is the duration of the training, right? So it's more on the British model of infantry training or uh, the Israeli, the IDF model of infantry training, which is where you have a full year of training before you ever go to your unit. And then there's more training before you ever deploy. Um, so I wonder if there isn't from your experience, if there wasn't something about, I I don't know how any of this works. I'm curious. I know there's a peer review process in a lot of selections. Is there something like that in the PJ pipeline or in the AFSOC pipeline? And what part does the selflessness play? Like being a a, a legit team member? Cause there's some, like, if you go to, uh, like, uh, tier one selection. It isn't necessarily all about teamwork. Some of it's just about your individual capability and stuff like that. And then, you know, when, when, when it's tier two stuff, a lot of time it is about more, more focused on the teamwork and stuff. I wonder what it was for you guys. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And one I've not really thought too much about, but now that you bring it up, I, uh, I can reflect back on several instances. Uh, you know, we, well, to put it in context, I, I was, I was an 18 year old punk kid when I joined, I had no clue what I was getting into. Um, you know, and I did all the research in the world, but, but at the, at the end of the day, the, the resources that we had back in, you know, 2000, early two thousands, when I was looking into PJs is, is there wasn't as much info as there is today. Right. So I wasn't able to really, um, find a mentor or somebody who was, I've never talked to a PJ until I actually graduated in doc or, you know, going through in doc with our instructors. So, um, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I just knew I had to. I had some basic stuff that you could Google search on, uh, you know, h- how many push-ups and, and and your runs and swims and stuff like that. But I I didn't really know what was involved. So I showed up and um, I was like bottom of my class, man. I had I had a dude in my uh, my roommate was actually a force recon guy that had already been through scuba school. And he was like, hey man, if you stick with me, I'm gonna get you through this. And we had like 130 people to start out. We also had another guy in our class that was like a ranger. And and, and we had some other other guys that cross-trained into pararescue. And, um, you know, as we started losing guys, uh, I they, they 
they told me at the beginning, they said, look around and uh, roughly 10% of you are going to be here at the end. And, and that that's been the, you know, 90% attrition is, is kind of what, what it was back then. It's, I, I think it's my, might've grown up to maybe 75% attrition now, but it's still pretty high attrition. So I was looking around and, you know, I was like, okay, 130 people, that means 13 people are going to make it at the end. And uh, this dude's a, you know, college swimmer and this dude's a recon guy. He's definitely going to make it. This guy's a ranger. He's definitely going to make it. And this guy, you know, I started going through the list and I was somewhere around like 50 or 60 where, I, you know, it's like these guys are all going to make it before me. And I had no clue, you know, what I was getting into. Um, so I just kind of took the mindset of, of, well, you know what? Um, they're, I'm comfortable getting to the point where they can push me till I pass out or they kill me or something, but I'll be damned if I quit. And so that was kind of my mindset going into it. And then I tried to just be the gray man, tried to stay quiet and, you know, just kind of put my head down and go. But there was absolutely peer reviews along the way. Luckily, I kind of snuck through there because I was pretty quiet and I just kind of, you know, was meeting the standards. Um, as you progress in, you know, further on into the different training uh, and, and you start to lose people, you get down to maybe, you know, 30 or 40 people, then you really start to hone in and, and they put a little more attention on the individuals. But it wasn't until uh, you graduated INDOC in our class, I think we had, um, you know, in the low 20s. So we, we were actually a bigger class than, than, than some of the previous classes. But uh, it wasn't until we graduated our, you know, the end of of our apprentice course which is for me it was it was almost three years into it um and we were down to nine at that point we basically uh it was it was almost weighted much more heavily on peer reviews and and uh you know how you were as a teammate uh not just not just you, you didn't have the ability just to kind of blend in anymore at that point and so um and we lost a lot of people along the way for various reasons but yeah i think uh I think what what they're really you know we we did a lot of um assessments which I thought was very interesting. We did a lot of uh you know paper personality tests and all this stuff to kind of see what 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 your mindset was on different things and I, I didn't know if that stuff was being graded or not. We didn't really have anybody fail out because of mindset, but at the end of it it was very interesting. We had we had a research group pull us aside and say that you know, 99% of our guys are all wired the exact same way. So I don't know if it was more of a special research project to see, you know, if, um, if, if, if we all had the same traits in common or if it was somehow, you know, they were, Hey, who we're going to focus on and try to weed out the people with the wrong stuff. I don't really know at the end of it. I just know that, you know, somehow I've, I've matched the right personality. And so, um, oftentimes when I have people that will, uh, try to say, oh, you're a badass because you're a PJ, and I'm sure you get stuff like this too with with your background. But I I, I kind of tell them now, I, I just think I was born wired a different way, and I was just happened to fall in to the right group uh, to be able to get through it. And uh, you know, I give the credit to God for that one. Not not really anything I did. I just kind of stuck in and and had some grit and determination and kept my head down. And I was apparently wired the right way. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, um, certainly there's there's something to be said for the company you keep in that regard. Being, being in the right spot is important. And that's, that's a leadership thing, of course. Um, and as far as the badass thing goes, I, I don't think I, again, I don't even think today, most people, if you ask them what a pararescueman or PJ is, they have no fucking clue, but you can, there's some examples at least, right? Like, uh, 
Um, we've seen them in movies for years, but it was never, I don't think it was ever really made obvious who they were, or what they were doing. Like uh, Black Hawk Down, people sawing dudes out of a, a Apache or Black Hawk, uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, uh, the pilot seats and shit and doing recovery rescue. The guy from, uh, God, what's the name of that stupid show? Modern Family uh, is one of them. Uh, and then the people that, that yank uh, Tom Berenger out at the end of Sniper, right? Those are pararescuemen. But nobody ever talks about them because they're not Navy SEALs, right? So yeah, um, they don't write books, so there's no no reason to pay attention. But um, <clears throat> it is it is something now with some of you guys who are more public figures. I mean, uh, certainly with uh, CZB and SEAC, uh, that, that helped promote the career field a little bit. Um, I wonder, so when they said that you guys are all wired the same, did you, did you get a sense of what they meant by that? Yeah. Um, well, I think it was more tied to like, uh, an alpha personality. Um, also just the way we deal with, uh, conflict and the way we, we, we look at, um, situations and we really, I guess going back to one of my original statements of thinking outside the box and and just we view problems a different way. And I, I did a little bit of studying in, in college of like, uh, you know, different personality styles and stuff like that. And they definitely try to pull out, you know, that they'll present you with a problem or a situation and the way you view it is it kind of fits in a different lane and everybody kind of has their own, you know, they, they might fill in a broader bucket and I, I'm, I'm probably doing a disservice to this, but essentially PJ's all kind of think in the same box, which is really kind of more outside the box, right? When, when something crazy goes on, um, instead of being very reactionary, we can kind of pull ourselves out and, and, and take a deep breath. And we don't let the chaotic situation around us, uh, define how we react. And I, never really understood the reason why they were selecting for that i guess i you know i could i could come up with a million reasons why i think it's important but i can tell you there's a couple missions that i was on where absolute chaos broke you know chaos broke out and dudes are dying and blowing up and 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 i see my teammates my pjs around me just the way that we are able to focus when all of that crazy stuff is going on it, it was like it instantly reminded me of like okay this is why you know they beat the shit out of us in the pool and they're taking our air away and they're trying to create all this chaos around us and they want us to do something uh, a task it could be something very simple you know tying knots or, or or doing something underwater but they take away our air they try to make it as chaotic as they can but then they have us do something that's very minuscule but it takes a lot of focus and it and, and it really clicked for me um a couple times on on a few missions where i was like oh now i understand why that training is important but i also understand why that's a wiring thing and not something that i can really you know train to yeah i mean it's I mean, uh, i can do it to some degree i guess sure but. yeah it's uh being able to compartmentalize in the moment is a really important part of reacting well in a chaotic situation and it's de it's true of gunfights i've been in plenty of those it's definitely true there so you don't make stupid mistakes um but i think it's even more true especially true in gunfights where the gunfight is secondary to what your task is right like we we had a yeah. pao that was attached to us who's this he doesn't he's not even he's carrying like a sidearm or some shit and he's walking around in the middle of a gunfight taking pictures i'm like dude you're fucking crazy i don't know what you're thinking uh but you know the more obvious example are medics and, and pjs um, 
who are, you know, spending time collecting or triaging or treating patients in the middle of all this chaos. That's, that's a skill, I guess, to some degree you can train that. But I also think that, uh, I think that you have to be, you have to have some innate proclivity for that sort of behavior before. I don't think you can train somebody who can't do it to do that, frankly. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And, and also it is, um, I believe now, and I need to look at, I should know, I should know this. I, I don't, but I believe now they're really weighting the personality test very heavily, honestly. And um, that may come to a shock to some folks, but it's, uh, it's because if they can determine, if they can in fact prove that these personalities are needed to accomplish a mission um, and we can pre-select people that have a better chance of actually getting through based on these personalities, then we can save a lot of tax dollars. Uh, so, you know, and not not put people through unnecessary thrash and try to get them through a program that they naturally aren't really meant to, to fit into, but then find something that they can do. And and I know that special off or uh, um, the, um, you know, the community I come from, the special, you know, special warfare, they're really trying to analyze that data and say, hey, will you probably wouldn't make a good PJ, but you make a really good combat controller or you'd make a really good special recon guy uh, based on, you know, these traits. Now, I think they still let them try out, but, um, you know, the data suggests that their their analysis are correct. This episode is also brought to you by BlackRifleCoffee.com, the best coffee in the world. As a matter of fact, they won both the gold and bronze medal at the Golden Bean Awards this year for their exclusive coffee club entries in the elite category. So the best coffee on earth literally was Circus Bear by Black Rifle, one of their ECS. So I recommend that you go sign up for the Black Rifle Coffee Club. Use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. And, uh, you know, you get all the benefits for being in the coffee club. You get the free shipping. You get access to all the partner deals. Uh, uh, you get access to the exclusive coffee club. You get access to any new products that come out before anybody else does. You know, it's a very large club that they have over there. And the coffees are premium. Every single one of them is good. Uh, you, you're going to get experience for you. You can do just the plain coffee club. And if you want your two bags of, of uh, espresso or your two bags of silence or smooth or whatever it is you drink, you can get those two bags or one bag or whatever you want every month or and or rather, you can use the ECS, the exclusive coffee club, and get access to some of the most premium coffees on the planet and kind of learn what it is that you like. You know what I mean? So then you can order those premium coffees from Black Rifle as well. So, and we all know they got the best branding, the best merch, and they're buddies. You know, we're all friends here. Uh, we love Black Rifle. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, or buy something, do whatever you want. Um, use the code CITIZEN, you're going to get those points off. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think... Um, that that's a big part of it the and and it's good that we're selecting for that because i really don't think you can train somebody into that and having somebody in that position who doesn't have that quality is going to get people fucked up frankly probably them as well but more likely other people uh and then you know the one thing that we never do in the military is take care of the what cz likes to call the human weapon right like we will our arms room guy will fucking inspect the shit out of your weapon and make sure you don't turn it in with a, with a piece of dust on it. Um, but there is a lot of dust on us, you know, when we come back home and then when we go back out and deploy again. And after the fact, I think that that ability or even proclivity to compartmentalize becomes a real problem because you carry that 
bullshit um, back into your civilian life and you never really learn how to process all that bullshit that you went through you know it's it's like I, I know this was the case for us uh call it what you want suck it up be a man drive on whatever stupid you know platitudes people use but i assume it was also an issue for you guys when you got back from deployments right yeah absolutely um i think because our community is is um you know i guess I would almost say desensitized to some degree. We, you know, they put us through a lot of, of um, very crazy training to try to get us prepared for that stuff, which is great. Uh, but yeah, th there's no doubt that it has to take a toll, especially when you start losing friends um, and you start losing, you know, family members, stuff like that. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty wild. And I, I have had a lot of friends that have uh, really struggled hard with, with, with PTSD and, you know, but, I feel like um, this is a real problem with not taking care of the warfighter, but also who pays the price for that is the family members. And that's who I believe are the, are the heroes, man. The people that kind of get left in the wake, the people that grab onto the coattails and are along for the ride, you know, the kids, the wives. I mean, my, my wife, um, you know, she spent three years without, without me as I was various locations all over the world and that's, you know, when we were newly married and she had to deal with that as a, as a wife and she never signed up for that. Right. And uh, the other part of that is, um, you know, like my wife had to talk to grieving spouses of buddies that were killed overseas. And she's, you know, pregnant and uh, she's trying to console a wife that just lost her husband overseas. And, you know, they got kids and, and this and that. And so man, just the mental trauma on our family members is is probably just as much, if not far greater than 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 what we see in the service members. So I, yeah, I agree with you, but I believe it extends way beyond the service members and really, really into their families as well. Sure. Yeah. And then it, you know, that eventually comes back on you too, as a provider protector, as an alpha type, when you see that uh, your family's struggling and there's nothing you can do about it because you're the one that's causing a lot of those issues. That's, that's not a great thing for you, right? That's a bad trap to be set in. And we don't really give people the tools to deal with that shit. We have a little questionnaire when you get back from deployment, Hey, you're, you're all right. Sweet. Get the fuck out of here. You know what I mean? And then when you transition yeah. out of the military, um, or transition from one place to another, it, it is, um, there's a lot of gaps in that process for sure. Um, how are things for you? So you, what, what, you were um, doing Middle East deployments, and then you got this new job developing the, the pararescue program for NASA to recover astronauts and shit. Um, first, tell me about that job, because that sounds really cool. And then second, uh, explain, like, one, once your operational tempo in dangerous environments goes down a little bit, what's that transition like for you? Because you're still in uniform doing the job, but it's a whole different experience then. Yeah, it's wild. I'll start back on the the NASA stuff. So um, just to put it out there up front, I man, I I maybe couldn't spell you know rocket when when I first got this job. I was in Tucson and I had come off of um, seven back to back deployments that were super rough and it was right at the peak of the war. And my uh, you know going back to the family, my wife was the one that was like, hey, you need to take a knee and throttle back. So at that point, I, you know, I was 10 years active duty. I decided I was going to um, just, you know, join the reserves. I wanted to stay in the community. I invested a lot into it. I loved it, but I knew it was, it was going to be a tough pill to swallow for my wife and two kids. And so at that point I said, well, 
what you know the best thing to do right now is to throttle back but stay connected to the community and so i became a reservist but then i started working for um, a, a job i was a military contractor in arizona that was planning a large force rescue exercise called angel thunder this is where we brought like two thousand people in and we had all the different uh all the different special forces would come in and play in our play box for like two you know our sandbox for like two weeks where uh we would basically put on a full war and then, uh, and, and, you know, the, the only rule to playing w- with us and we pay for everything is that there had to be some personnel recovery event. And so we had, you know, FBI, DEA, we had SEALs and Rangers and everybody, you know, Marine guys, everybody was participating to include aircraft and 25 different nations. So we planned this whole big large scale war and we'd put it on and then, uh, you know, there'd be some personnel recovery events where, the PJs would would come in and, and Air Force Rescue in, in general would come in and, and and be able to help solve some of those problems. So that was a really cool job. Did that for three years. And uh, but we were just getting tired of Arizona. And so uh, we wanted to get somewhere, you know, get somewhere where we could feel the breeze of the ocean. And so we wanted to just get out of there. So uh, I, I found out about a job that uh, NASA was looking for a PJ to come on board as a government civilian and basically develop their commercial crew program for, you know, for pararescue and, uh, and, and teach the PJs how to rescue the astronauts. So, uh, I kind of told my wife as a joke. And so we're, you know, we're driving to church that evening. And, uh, so she actually went in and, and I had a resume prepared because I was actually, you know, looking for other jobs. So I had a resume prepared. So she actually went in the system and applied for me. And, uh, you know, it was in Patrick, Patrick uh, Air Force Base in Florida, you know, Cocoa Beach, Florida. I mean, who doesn't go there? And so um, uh, I didn't even apply. I didn't think I had a shot at the at the job. And uh, but I got a call back, and you know, I got an interview, and kind of told him who I was and what I was doing. I was, you know, helping helping run this exercise for the last several years. And so I had PJ experience, but I also had experience with really doing outside the box stuff and planning large exercises and logistics and creating really something almost out of nothing. And then, uh, so that's exactly what they were looking for. So I, I landed this job in 2015 where I was going to develop, you know, the procedures for NASA. And, and again, uh, so yeah, it's rescuing astronauts wasn't really new because we had the shuttle, but we didn't really rescue anybody out of the shuttle, um, you know, cause it was a winged aircraft. And so they actually would bail out into the ocean. Uh, we, but PJs were rescuing astronauts back in Apollo, Gemini, mm-hmm. Mercury. We hadn't actually rescued anybody out of an actual capsule since you know the 70s so we had to kind of figure it all out from scratch so uh my first day on the job actually i was driving and uh you know tlf screwed me up and and just like the military stuff goes you know trying to move and so i was staying in this like shitty hotel with my two dogs and 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 my kids up on like the sixth floor of the hilton and uh you know i was i was driving in driving in on my first day to work uh down us1 right along the the river and I saw something weird I, I'd never seen before, and it was an actual launch. I'd never seen a launch before in my whole life, a rocket launch. And so I saw a launch, and I was kind of mesmerized by it. And uh, this was um, June 28, 20, uh, 2015. And, and so uh, I, was, I was driving in. I, I see this thing going up. I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. It's a rocket. And then all of a sudden, something squirrely happens. It starts, like, zigzagging through the air and then blows up. <laughs> and so... And so I uh, go in and, I, you know, I don't know if that's normal. I mean, shit, that's a, to me, it just seemed like, oh, well, this is probably what happens out here. 
And I go in and, and uh, meet, meet my boss and start talking through everything. And like, yeah, there was a, uh, a SpaceX rocket that blew up this uh, this morning. You know, they're part of the commercial crew program. And, oh, by the way, this is now your program. So this is your problem to try to figure out, right? So um, so I started working with SpaceX and Boeing and uh, spent hundreds of hours out in the ocean with astronauts trying to figure out how to, you know, how to rescue them. What's unique about microgravity and and, and working with uh, uh, an astronaut who's been up in space, and then also, you know, all the high, all the different hazards that are on board the spaceship, the hypergalls, and all the things that will like kill you if you breathe them in. And so, you know, I went, I mean, there was, a, there was a team of folks. I, I, sh- I shouldn't say me. There was about nine of us that worked in this organization. Really, really smart people, by the way. And we all had our own little specialties. Some of them were focusing on the aircraft stuff. Some of them were focusing on the medical stuff. There was another PJ, a guy named Brett Manny, incredibly smart. It was really, uh, he, he was working on all the, all the medical stuff. And then um, my job was really just to try to figure out how to integrate pararescue tactics, techniques, and procedures into that, and then help help the spacecraft providers build their spaceships. This is before space, uh, Boeing or SpaceX really had a finished product, so we worked a lot with them, worked a lot with um, Artemis, with uh, the Orion, you know, the, the NASA program, mm-hmm. and uh, just try to help them craft a spaceship that was kind of rescue-friendly, and then kind of built the playbook and and had no idea what we needed, so I just took our pararescue um a utc which is unit type code like all the crap that we take with us to war and i just started going through line by line and okay yeah we could probably use that we could probably use this we could probably use this and uh went through line by line and eventually you know came up with a pretty good product of how we were going to actually rescue folks spent a lot of time with test agencies and uh you know airdrop and stuff and and specialized equipment worked a lot with NASA engineers to build special rafts and stuff that we can actually survive out in the ocean. And so kind of our charge was that we can keep a critically injured astronaut alive for up to 72 hours out in the ocean without any sort of resupply. So we sent a PJ team in and, you know, it's a long shot into orbit, right? So, and once they get into orbit, they're going around the earth every 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a couple thousand miles all the way up to they get to uh, around Ireland. And uh, but anywhere in between here in Ireland, if there's a problem with that rocket, you know, that spaceship uh, the uh, on top, the capsule is going to blast off and come down under parachute. And then somebody's got to get out there to get them. And I think there's this like false sense of security along uh, uh, amongst some people that there's, you know, the Coast Guard is always waiting to come get you. I mean, I could tell you it'll be in some cases, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours before there would even be a ship that would be able to get to you. So having a team that can parachute in and come save your ass right away is pretty valuable to NASA. And that's why they invested in that. Hence my job. Now, at the same time, I was also PJ to answer the second part of your question. I was also a PJ and um, was starting to get up in, you know, a little more seniority. At this point, I think I was an E7 working my way up to E8. And eventually, you know, I made E9. But uh, as you start to get more senior in, in in rank, you know your roles on the team kind of go more into a managerial standpoint. So um, that's kind of the transition I was starting to make. But I was very active as a as a PJ reservist. Uh, I mean, I was still you know jumping a couple times uh, a month, if not more, uh, flying you know once or twice a week, and just trying to stay in the fight. Just because it's uh, it's a you know it's it's kind of a fun thing to to, to do. But um, 
Yeah, at this point in my career now, I was a lot more active back then, and uh, I could get into, uh, you know, I kind of had, uh, uh, they they pulled me off of status and 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 in 2018, and uh, since then I haven't been able to do a lot on the military side, do a lot on the civilian side, but that that transition was kind of hard for me, honestly. Yeah, um, you mentioned something before about well, a couple a couple of things. One, it's crazy to me that we didn't. For 40 years, we weren't, we didn't have PJs teaching NASA how to do recovery. Like that's kind of their specialty. That seems insane, or at least the the uh, Coast Guard recovery people, right? Somebody had to be training them, right? You would think. Well, what we did, we 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 did we did these missions called Tau missions, and I was actually on them where we sit alert, but we don't do anything different than we do for like a pilot, right? So it wasn't really super unique to NASA. It would be like a uh, they give you a one day. PowerPoint class, they give you a spacesuit and you can show them and get them out. But what you weren't dealing with was the very the complexities of the capsule itself. Mm. So we, we were trained on, you know, recovering astronauts, but this is like literally a dude floating in the ocean that you parachute in and go snatch, just like you would somebody who bailed out of an aircraft or something. The only unique thing about it was the spacesuit, which they gave us some really rudimentary training on and then um uh, you know, a, a little bit on space medicine, but um, the it, it wasn't it wasn't very complex. So yeah, PJ still did that, but it was it was not as involved as it as it is now. Like where we actually have dudes, um, you know, that have to go through two weeks of training to actually be qualified to go and do this. It was just like a PowerPoint mm-hmm. class and and hand you a, a mock up spacesuit and and you go you know sit alert somewhere for a little while. So, uh, but now it's, it's much more involved, honestly. And, uh, you said something about, well, space medicine sounds awesome. Um, I don't know why it just sounds like space drugs to me, but, um, <laughs> working with a guy who's, uh, been in space, they lose quite a bit of bone density up there. So I imagine you're dealing with yeah. somebody that's weaker than you might expect them to be under the conditions, right? Especially if they've been yeah. sitting out there for 72 hours waiting for you. Yeah, so this is mainly on the reentry stuff is where we worry about this. So if somebody's been up in space for a while, right, and they start to lose bone density, their neurovestibular system's mm-hmm. all out of whack. So, so like if they look look left too fast or something, they'll just start projectile vomiting, mm-hmm. and it's never good when you're out in the middle of the ocean. Uh, but on the way up, they're just like a normal human. On the way back, um, they're a lot different. You treat them like your buddy that you're prying out of the bar at 2 a.m., right? They're <laughs> just like – you're trying to keep them. You're just trying to get them home, right? Sure. So you're very gentle with them. Uh, you're trying to, you know, they, they might be throwing up and stuff like that. And that's kind of how we talk about treating them. Is, well, you know. luck, luckily, we have uh, a little bit of experience there. I don't think you need yeah. to do a training class for that. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. The good thing is going through school, we got a lot of training in prying our buddies out of bars at 2 a.m. Um, yeah. So another question I had about that is um, going through that process – for however many years it was, um, was were there any lessons learned that made their way back to AFSOC? Like, did you learn something on that job that you could apply back to the military aspect? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, uh, you see, I could see in my screen the picture of the over there, the dudes on the raft, right? So mm -hmm. that that it's called the uh, we call it the front porch, but it's like the NASA recovery raft. So uh, working with NASA, we you know we we had to solve the problem for somebody out at sea for a very long time, and um, and traditionally we've just had like twenty man you know, life rafts or you know the survival rafts or whatever. And you get in, it's just this nasty, soupy mess of water, and and dudes are cold, and and it's it's kind of a terrible situation. You're basically just surviving. Well, we actually created a raft that um, it lifts you up about 18 inches off the water, and it's rigid, so it's it's like uh, it's like one of those hard stand-up paddle boards, mm. and it has all the ballasting systems and all this really cool stuff inside. So we're not just surviving; we can actually provide treatment to them. And so we're we're implementing those rafts in uh, open ocean mass casualties. So uh, and you can imagine, and we, we had to create this raft to be able to survive anywhere in the world. So, you know, we, we could literally be somewhere where the water temperature is, is you know, at freezing or below freezing. And we could still keep somebody warm and safe and do medical treatment on them and not just survive. And so um, coming up with implementations where um, we can actually do open ocean mass casually. And so that, that's a that's a big deal going forward. And also that's something that, you know, my company's looking into as well is really there's nobody who's doing this right now. And if there was an airliner or something that went down, you know, trying to get dudes on the X quickly and be, be able to provide some sort of a open ocean mass casually is, is uh, it's, it's, it's really just a, there's a false sense of security out there that, that we're, we're going to go out there and do it right because nobody's really practicing. Nobody has the tools or the techniques to be able to do something like that. And so uh, um, uh, on the military side, the military has been very interested in some of the technologies and some of the things that we've built for the NASA program that has has, has helped out the warfighter. Another side of that is um, uh, this carbon fiber dive system. Now, this is something that we never really worked with in the Air Force much. Uh, when I went through, I went through, um, um, I went through Key West, the CDQC. And, you know, we dove the Drager and we had we, we had some smaller uh, lightweight dive stuff, but uh, but we didn't really have like a carbon fiber scuba system. And uh, throughout building this program, we realized, you know, uh, you're going to be out in the middle of the ocean and we use jet skis to actually pull and to stabilize the capsule. Uh, and, and if you think about like a ship out in the ocean, it's just kind of moving back and forth. Well, if it's underway, uh, then it stabilizes. So that's the easiest way to stabilize like SpaceX's Crew Dragon because it sits really high in the water is uh, the best way to stabilize it if it's kind of getting crazy is to actually tow it and stabilize it. So we use jet skis to stabilize it. Well, um, uh, riding on a jet ski out in the middle of the ocean, you know, big waves and stuff, you don't want freaking scuba tanks on your back, man. That's going to kill somebody and then also now you got to get off the and, and the reason you're wearing this is because all of the hypergalls on board the spaceship if you breathe them in there you know they literally will kill you and so you gotta you gotta have full uh ppe on um and you know full full enclosed self self-contained breathing apparatus right and so basically um also, when you get there, you, you don't want something heavy on your back, but when you get to the capsule, you got you got to climb in and pull four humans out, right? So you also don't want heavy-ass scuba tanks on your back. So we actually um, worked with Interspiro, started using a carbon fiber dive system that's low profile and, and, and works out really well. And they actually got it on the uh, approved for Navy use, the ANU, and, or 
whatever whatever that stands for now, but the ANU. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the military can use it for any sort of operations. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's some of the stuff we've developed has really helped out uh, our, our brothers and sisters uh, overseas. And, and then also on that note, we also came up with new ways to with our helicopters to be able to fit patients in. So the way the helicopters are, they kind of bow out in the middle, you know, and so um, we actually came up with these stanchions that would raise the patients up so that we can have two patients on either side and then two patients stacked underneath them. And and, you know, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan where where we would uh, we we would not be able to fit the amount of people in the back of the helicopter that we needed to. And so just by simply coming up with this system that we were using for NASA, we were able to send that overseas and our guys our guys and gals overseas were able to implement those same you know tactics and uh and be able to fit more people in the helicopter so there's there's quite a bit that we did that actually helped out the warfighter believe it or not yeah that's interesting um so you're talking about like sea king sea stallion and black hawks and shit like that you would just have two yeah black hawks yeah uh, primarily black hawks are what we're using uh pave hawks the air force mm. version yeah, yeah. are refuelable Okay. That's interesting. You, you mentioned a phrase, uh, that, um, I am unfamiliar with. I think it's hyperballs or some shit. Is that what you said? Can you explain <laughs> what that is? Hyper- yeah. Hyperballs. Uh, and, and really this is what the rockets, uh, the way the fuel works. So they'll have two different sort of fuels that when they actually connect with each other, uh, they cause an explosion and they cause, you know, they, they essentially it's, it's, it's what they use to as rocket fuel. So, mm-hmm. um, some of the different space companies will use different agents, but they're all pretty toxic. So, uh, like for instance, uh, monomethyl hydrazine and nitrogen texoxide. When those two meet, it causes uh, an explosion, and it'll cause you know just a, a massive uh, a, amount of thrust. And this is what the rockets will use to actually propel them into space. So uh, they're they're called hy- hypergals, and uh, it's it's really just a class of propellants that um that are used and uh but they can be very toxic Mm, i see so you can't the this is on what some internal chamber of the recovery pod or some shit or where where is this where are you being exposed to this stuff yeah so well if you think about it this way um you have a rocket that's you know traveling incredibly fast to get to space right to get to orbit so in order for a capsule at the end of that rocket to have enough thrust to blast off of that rocket and then come down under parachute they got they got to have some pretty intense engines on those so so like spacex will have um they'll have uh they they call them super draco engines that that are on the side initially they were created to uh to be able to use as, as thrusters that they can have propulsive landings but uh, but they're used also in the escape system. So they'll fire those if there's any sort of an anomaly as they're flying up to space. And it'll actually pull the spaceship off of the rocket and uh, far enough to where then it could come down under parachute. So it's kind of like how uh, like a ejection seat in an F-16, mm-hmm. you know, they pull the handles and that thing blasts off some rocket motors and it'll propel their seat out of the aircraft. Same sort of concept with these rockets. And so now the capsules with people in them are going to blast off with these big ass engines and will blast off into the uh, into the middle of the ocean and come down on a parachute. So uh, those uh, those engines um, and now in a n- normal situation, they're not like just free flowing the the gases, the hypergals when it lands. However, 
there a lot of times there'll be some residue or if there's like a, a stuck thruster or something like that then it can it can uh, continue to uh, emit one or both of those gases into the uh, you know into the atmosphere so you definitely don't want to come up without some sort of breathing apparatus mm -hmm. uh, to, to check so we we actually have sensors that will carry with us um, and in hazard detectors that that are programmed to to be able to detect those chemicals and so we'll the one of the first things we'll do is go up and kind of sweep the capsule and make sure there's none of those thrusters are you know emitting any of those toxins uh, but we have to be on you know um, full scuba in order to do that hmm. interesting um yeah so it's good I mean like the public private partnership there kind of mutually beneficial to a large degree and and you know I don't know if NASA is ever going to make a comeback to what it was back in the day, but certainly these private companies are interested in for one reason or another. I mean, I'm sure there's there's got to be a monetary component to it. Nobody does anything for free. Um, I don't yeah. know if they're just laying the ground for space mining or some shit or if it's space tourism where they're trying to make money or what, but or just like taking over government contracts for NASA. But there's definitely a lot going on there. And similarly, um, you've got this private for-profit company operator solutions tell me about that yeah so um the whole time you know the team built the program to do it for nasa uh, there was always this question well who's going to do this for private industry because you know you can't take a bunch of special operators and put them on an airplane to sit alert for you know Britney Spears, if she wants to go to space, right? Like you can do that for a NASA astronaut government on government. But what happens when we start launching tourists and other space travelers and, you know, commercial astronauts up to space, all of these companies, SpaceX, Boeing, Blue Origin, there's, there's a long list of them. I mean, there's like, you know, in the high 20s of, of number of, of companies that are developing this capability to send people into space. So who's going to actually sit alert and provide rescue to these companies? Um, just so happens uh, that, you know, while we were building the program, I just kind of got interested in this. I was also going through to uh, college to get my MBA. And so I thought, you know, hey, just as a beta test, I would I would just kind of put this out there as a thesis for my capstone project and my master's to see if the, any of these companies, if, if this is actually a viable business. I did it more so just as a project for school. Uh, but as the industry, you know, some of the folks that I talked to, uh, they, they, they were all concerned about this as well. And so uh, I saw that the demand was very high. And uh, at that point, I just started becoming more and more interested in, well, how would I actually do this? How would I actually start a company that would do the same thing we're doing for the military on the private sector? So, yeah, uh, I, I grabbed the you know two smartest dudes I could I could grab onto a guy named uh, Shane Smith. He's our CFO. He was also the command chief um, of, at the time of the of the rescue wing that I was at, and then uh, another chief, uh, uh, Chris Leis, who was our CEO COO of our company. And uh, he was mainly uh, the guy who I brought over to help me develop a lot of these procedures when I was working for NASA doing this stuff. And so um, kind of put our heads together and uh, we came up with a business plan and a business model and then uh, just, you know, decided that we would actually jump in and start this. And Axiom was our very first client. And uh, uh, Axiom was a company that was going to be flying on a SpaceX Crew Dragon but they had a contract with NASA to build onto the International Space Station, and they're going to be building their modules 
onto the station and then eventually the whole international space station when it you know um reaches its its service life is actually going to be deorbited mm. and then the axiom station will be up there and so uh they they won that contract so they were going to start flying people to space to stay at the station in order to um you know to start to understand this process of how it would work and so they were the first company that was in in line to need this capability and uh so they talked to us and and we came up with a game plan where we would actually you know uh, start a company that can provide this and axiom helped us out quite a bit so you know we we, we kind of we made the decision early on in dealing with axiom that um, we did not want to work only for Axiom, that this was a need that the entire industry had. And if we were just to do this for one company, then it would leave a lot of uh, a lot of people at risk. And so we came up with a very interesting business model where they would purchase the majority of the equipment up front. And then if we service any other providers, that we can actually use that equipment as long as they get a, a percentage of the profits from that, uh, we could service, you know, other clients. And so that's kind of how the business started. We have uh, since then done a lot of very interesting things and we've ventured into uh, some other realms beyond just doing space stuff. I mean, we're working with other companies doing very interesting things. So we, we uh, you know, trying to trying to figure out how we can get a force uh, basically of uh, military dudes and, and military capabilities with, you know, aircraft and, 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 you know, parachutes and all the different things you have in the military. A lot of folks take that for granted. So it was uh, it was definitely a fun project trying to figure out how to solve that for the commercial industry. And then how do you get insurance for that sort of thing, which was one of our biggest obstacles. But if we started a company in 2020 officially, I didn't leave my government job until 2021. And uh, and then we supported Ax uh, in summer of 2021, and then we supported Axiom in the fall of uh, 21. So it was uh, it was a pretty um, pretty fast transition. It wasn't very long ago that all that went down, and uh, our company has been growing exponentially. And you know we've held alert for several space missions and other unique uh, missions as well. I think we were um, initially. Called on here to talk about the uh, Alpha Five project, which mm. was really interesting. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that in a second. Mm. But uh, everything we do, we try to give back to the community, and so uh, and, and 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 try to make the world a, a safer place and a better place, and uh, just try to do our do our part as as, as good American war fighters. Yeah, that idea about um, you know moving things around. Uh, what. That's John Pershing, right? Infantry wins battles, logistics win wars. Um, yep. That's a problem that we always have to solve, you know, for every generation of warfighter. Um, and uh, we've uh, that insurance thing is real, man. We've run into that with our recovery operations for U.S. sits around the uh, uh, around the world. Whenever some bullshit goes down, we'll send people in. Uh, I mean, we got people down in Haiti right now. It's like getting aircraft or boats insured for an operation like that, good fucking luck, buddy. It ain't happening. Yeah. Like, nobody's going to insure that. And it, it is what it is. You just got to eat it sometimes. But um, now you you mentioned it. Let's get to Alpha 5. This is a crazy-ass story. I mean, I was always jealous of the Australians um, because you can get a balloon. You can get balloon jump wings over there. Um, and I, I don't know. I've never met anybody in the U.S. military that had an opportunity to do that shit. Um, cause it's only like, I think it's only a couple of dudes up in the balloon and there's one, the, the only, 
there's a jump master and then the balloon operator and whomever's jumping typically, right? Uh, at least for, for their shit. Uh, I was always jealous of that because that would be the most ridiculous device to have on your Class A uniform. This is a big fucking yeah. hot air balloon. But uh, tell me about this Alpha 5 thing because it's, it's pretty wild. You guys, were, you guys were up there. Yeah, yeah. So we were pretty high. I'll, I'll start with kind of a little bit of background on how Alpha 5 started. So I talked about our company starting with uh, with the Axiom, Axiom mission. Well, there was an astronaut on there, Larry Connor, um, who is just an incredible human being. And, and he, uh, he, he was, um, he was kind of, he, he was absolutely the driver behind alpha five, but the story goes, it, it kind of takes a step back to when he was going to space. So, you know, first Axiom crew, he was the pilot and, um, part of their training was, uh, they were going to come through and work with us. And, uh, you know, we were a new company. We hadn't validated that we could actually do what we say we can do, that we can actually get, uh, you know, civilian C-130, load up all of the equipment. I mean, we're talking boats and jet skis and specialized equipment and make sure we have all the right shackles and releases and uh, everything that you would actually need to be able to airdrop this stuff out in the middle of the ocean safely. And then also, you know, having a, a team uh, to be able to jump out, jump to that equipment and then get that over to the spaceship. So we hadn't validated yet that this could be done. In fact, even at my NASA job, we had at this point, we had not done an end-to-end exercise where we had actually proven that we could rescue an astronaut by committing forces out of an aircraft, jumping in the ocean, pulling them out of an actual spaceship and then getting them to the hospital. So um, we, we thought it was the right thing to do that we could actually put on a validation exercise to prove to the world that we can do this as a commercial company. And by this point, we did have uh, all the right things in, in, in place with insurance and aircraft and, and all, this, all the, all the uh, you know, nitinoid logistics that we had to get done. And so um, when Larry and his group, uh, the, you know, the, the four astronauts came through our facility, part of it, we talked to them about you know, getting ready for rescue and this and that. We, we had uh, invited them to our validation exercise, which was going to happen a few months later. This was in January of 21. And um, so uh, Larry actually asked the question, well, who are you guys using as astronauts that are going to be in your spaceship out in the ocean? And we said, well, we're probably going to have a couple survival experts or somebody, military guys, you know, out there and they'll be playing uh, astronauts. And and Larry was like, bullshit, you're going to use us. (laughs) And uh, so, which I thought was great. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, now I'm going to put three billionaires and a Hall of Fame astronaut in a spaceship in the middle of the ocean and we're going to parachute to them. We're going to hoist them out and, you know, fly over. And so like, it's funny cause like you could see the wheels turning with the leadership at like Axiom and some of these other places, like there's no way that's going to happen. And it's really funny cause it's like, they kind of, you know, pulled the leadership aside and we're like, uh, I guess when you're the guy writing the check, you have a little more say in what you can and can't do. Right. And so, uh, so next thing you know, we're actually preparing for having them as our survivors out in the ocean. And so, uh, we pulled off the event. We, uh, you know, we, we actually took, uh, it was wild because there was an actual launch going on that same day. And so we got to watch a, a launch go up all the, you know, when these guys are out in the ocean, we had an actual SpaceX capsule that SpaceX was helping participate. They put a capsule in the water that it's the same one that we use training with the, with the NASA folks. And um, we had that out in the ocean. We had the, we had the, the actual crew inside the uh, capsule. And then uh, we had our guys, you know, C-130 flew in and had our command and control up and running. Everybody was talking to each other. Our guys parachuted in, opened up all the rafts and all the boats and came in with their SCBA on the jet skis and cleared the area. 
uh, opened up the hatch, pulled the crew out onto that survival raft I was telling you about. And then we had a helicopter come in uh, that we were working with and hoist them out of the ocean. We flew them to the hospital and dropped them off. And, uh, and you know, it, it was really good for us to validate that we could actually do this. And, uh, well, after that, Larry had such a blast that um, he actually wrote a letter to Mike Suffordini, the CEO of Axiom, and said, hey, you know, in this uh, whole year of training to be an astronaut, this was like the highlight of my training, and I had such a good time. And, and then Larry actually um, came to me and said, you know, hey, hey, hey Brandon, uh, you know, after they landed now, after they've been to space, they came down. The day after, they were having a social and uh, Larry pulls me aside and starts to ask me some questions about, you know, hey, listen, I've, I've kind of checked this box. I'm an astronaut. Hey, I've done all this stuff now, but I've always wanted to do a really high altitude, high altitude jump. Do you, you know, you, you think we can get a team together and pull it off? And I told him, I said, you know, hey, Larry, I, I've done I've done um, some high altitude jumps before. And I, and I know that, you know, the one thing I know I can do is uh, that we can do as a, as a company is that we can assemble the right people to make it happen. Now, you know, I'm personally not the expert in high altitude jumping, but I commit that I can get the right team together to make that happen. So um, that's kind of how it started uh, about a year and a half of train up for this. We actually uh, along the way. Larry was adamant, and and so was my, my team, quite frankly, that um, we didn't want to just do this to be an experience. We wanted to do it for a purpose, right? And uh, and, and that's where we got married up with the uh, Special Operation Warrior Foundation. And you're probably very, very familiar with, mm. with their organization, right? Yep. Okay, yeah. So uh, we did a lot of vetting, by the way. Um, and uh, we, we looked into dozens and dozens of charities, and we really wanted to support um, – you know, folks that have been to combat and are at the pointy end uh, of the stick there. And uh, and we really wanted to make make sure that we were um, helping raise money for an organization that was not just honorable, but was making a real difference. Right. And so and, and I think I told you I'm very passionate about the families that are left behind. And uh, and and I could tell you, you know, is, is is you're probably in the same boat. What you're thinking about when you're deployed and getting shot at and all that other stuff is not really your own safety. You're thinking about your family that's back home, left in the wake, and and if you were to get killed, you know, who is actually going to be the one who is mentoring your son mm. and helping your son get graduate high school and teaching him how to be a man and you know and treating your daughter right and and what she should look for in a man and all that stuff and. And, and, and just helping them through college and making sure that they're actually successful. So um, as we were doing all of our vetting along the way, came across Special Operations Warrior Foundation, did a lot of research and found out that, that, that they're the organization that, that does all of that stuff, that takes care of the children of the special operators that are killed in combat. So uh, we partnered with them and uh, we built a balloon. In, uh, by the way, one of the logistics we were trying to figure out how to solve is how do you get uh, up to um, 35,000, which was our goal. How do we get up to 35,000 feet to do a jump? We're looking into aircraft, and there's a couple outfits that don't really have the best safety record. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and you also can't, like, you it's you can't drive a C-130 up there and depressurize at 38,000 feet, right? I mean, there's, no. a, it's, there's not a whole lot of aircraft that even have that capabilities, so, so far as I know, right? Yeah, well, so um, there, there's a couple, you know, a C-17 can do it, but that's mm. right, their limit. Uh, C-130 can't really get that high. Mm. So, uh, so you know, we were racking our brain. There's a couple European aircraft that can potentially do it. So um, 
just kind of came up with this wild idea of, hey, can can we do it out of a hot air balloon? Like, you know, can we get a hot air balloon up that high? And just so happens we have uh, a, guy, a guy on my team uh, named uh, John Clark, who um, his wife, Laurel Clark, was actually one of the astronauts that was killed in the Columbia, you know, just happened. Uh, but, but John, he's like the world expert on space medicine. And he was actually like the medical director for uh, Red, the, the Red Bull jump and also Stratic. So like, you know, Felix Baumgartner and then all, also Alan Eustace. Mm-hmm. So he, he ran all of that stuff. And so he, he had expertise on how to get a balloon that high and he knew it could be done and how to do it safely. Um, pulled in, pulled in some really, really smart folks. So a guy named Rob Dieguez who, uh, pararescue background, but he was doing a lot with, uh, you know, with, with JSOC and he was, he was teaching at our, uh, at, 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 at one of those courses where they're, they're teaching, uh, some of the dudes how to jump, you know, high and, and all that stuff. So he, he had a lot of experience with, with high altitude jumping and then running students and people that are not, you know, jumpers by nature, how, how you know, to get, I guess every one of them is a jumper, but to take guys who are mediocre jumpers and make them really good jumpers. Mm. So we need somebody like that because like myself and Chris, my other business partner, you know, we're, we're PJs and we've done high altitude jumps, but we're not, you know, we're, we're by no means am I like a sky hippie hanging out, you know, at the drop zone. You know, I, I have like all of 600 jumps, right? Mm. And you would you would suspect that people that do this sort of thing probably have thousands of jumps, and there's plenty of guys out there more qualified to do it than me. So we need somebody to take care of us. But then also Larry. Larry had, um, man, Larry is he's such a badass. He has he he had like 60 jumps or 100 jumps going into this. Uh, but they were all in like the 90s. And so he hadn't jumped in years. And so he wanted to get from doing, you know, go, just getting back into it with with very limited jumps. And then definitely not like uh, at least my 600 jumps. A lot of them are hard earned jumps with O2, nighttime, yeah. night vision. I mean, they're hard jumps, right? Yeah. But like not not just drop zone jumps. But Larry came in completely cold. But uh, but man, he just has that drive and that tenacity and that grit. So, um, so we had to make sure Larry was safe. And so, uh, and, 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 uh, and so Rob was putting together the program for him. And then we had another guy, Jimmy Petrolia, who's another PJ that had, uh, he has the, uh, he actually went up to 37,000 or 38,000. He, he, he'd been that high cause he, he has the wingsuit record. So he had done the wingsuit jump and so we needed another guy, and he was also an AFFI. Him and Rob were both AFFIs, and so we we kind of grabbed those two dudes, and then and then me and Chris, and me and Chris were there more so for med support. We were intentionally pulling high, and we were going to land with Larry no matter where he landed, you know. And that was kind of our initial going in, but then it turned into, um, you know, let's get five people and let's take them up to an altitude that nobody has jumped that high as a group. And let's actually, you know, pull off a world record. So in order to do that, we built the world's largest or the the largest hot air balloon built in the U.S. and uh, and you know put all kinds of special operations warrior foundation stuff all over it. And and the Alpha Five project was what it was called. Larry came up with a name, Alpha being be, being you know the the first and the best. It's you know and and then, and then five being the five members that were actually going to accomplish it. And so and then and then the project really because it wasn't just an experience. It was actually for a purpose, which was to raise money for Special Operations Warrior Foundation. So we kind of came together with the playbook. We built the balloon, went out to Roswell, New Mexico, uh, partnered with um, the, uh, the the school out there, uh, New Mexico Military Institute. By the way, 
if any of your listeners, it's worthwhile to look into that school. Are you familiar with New Mexico Military Institute? No. Oh, man, it's it's a really, really cool organization. There's like a thousand kids there, anywhere from middle school through junior college. Uh, it's like older than the state of New Mexico, but uh, it's a really, really cool institution um, that's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, m- military institution, but uh, they, they take kids. It's kind of like, it's like a military prep mm-hmm. academy. And, uh, but they have incredible, I mean, I think they dump like $20 million a year into their facility. So it's like when you go to their campus, it's in the middle of Roswell, New Mexico, a very unassuming place, but this campus, it's like you're walking through Harvard or something. I mean, so we, you know, we, we, we were trying to find a place to launch this balloon and we needed to launch it during dark hours. So it was either the airfield or it was like this college area, this military institute with the giant stadium lights. And so we went and talked to the college and they were on board. And so, uh, and, and man, what a cool school and a bunch of cool cadre. A lot of uh, special ops guys work there as cadre. Um, and so they helped us out a lot. So we launched out of there and we went up to uh, 38,139 feet and uh and jumped out man and uh you know came down in a five-man formation and then landed out in the middle of the desert so a lot goes into it there was like i mean we had an incredible o2 technician tad smith um he's done a lot of these sort of things in the past uh shane wallace our balloon pilot was actually uh, he built uh he was one of the lead engineers for spaceship two for virgin so he was a blue pilot and he had a lot of space experience and so he was a, he was a you know an, an odd guy but but a, a, an odd fit but uh, I mean, just an incredible, hardworking dude that was really, really good at his craft. I mean, how do you find somebody who has, like, done something nobody's, nobody's ever done before, right? Like, where do you find somebody to pilot your balloon to go up to 39,000 feet? Yeah, no shit. Uh, so, yeah, so, so, I mean, you just friend of a friend of a friend, and that's how this whole team came together. So, at the end of this, we had, like, 60 people participating. The majority of them volunteers just want to be part of this. And, again, our goal was to raise a million dollars for Special Operations Warrior Foundation and um, it was a mission success. We did the jump and, and we raised the money. But I would also say that it's a worthwhile cause. Yeah, we were trying to raise a million dollars, but uh, they can use a lot more. So and put a, a plug in for them, man. Alpha5project.com if you want to donate and your listeners want to donate. A uh, very worthwhile cause. And and I, I can give you a personal story of, 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 of something they benefited, you know, a, a family that I've seen them actually uh uh, help out that uh, made it very, very trans or very uh, close home to me personally. So uh, great organization and um, really bad for them. So that, that's how the jump went. Super cold. Uh, it's like minus 60 up there. Oh yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's one degree Fahrenheit colder for every thousand feet, right. That you go up. But that was three or yeah, it might, might be one. Yeah. One, one or three. Well, I but, think it's after 10,000 feet. Every additional thousand feet, it's a degree cooler, some shit like that. I don't yeah. remember exactly what the conversion is. Yeah, but it sucks. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So we had heated, we had heated garments, but what I, what I can tell you is, uh, we launched right at sunrise, and or right before sunrise. So we were coming up. It was only about 45 minutes to get up to altitude, and uh, 45, 50 minutes to get up to altitude. Had a couple burner problems along the way, and. Um, uh, but but we were able to get up to altitude, and uh, I can tell you, just absolutely serene, standing out over you know over that ramp, and uh, there's no wind at that altitude, or you know there's no wind because you're in a balloon. Mm. So you're sitting up there looking at New Mexico as the sun's coming up. You can see the curvature of of, of the Earth really. At, 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 you see the curvature at, at, at that altitude, mm. and no sound, no wind, 
absolutely serene and beautiful and then uh you know able just to jump out then you're going almost 200 miles an hour instantly right so it's, it's quite quite the ride that's pretty sweet um yeah it's it's uh and you guys met your fundraising goal which is a million bucks right we did meet our fundraising goal of of, of a million dollars which great i think we uh ex- exceeded it by you know um a, a few thousand dollars but but um, it's uh, it's it's definitely definitely a cause that I think is it's it's going to be a a, contr- a continual contribution from 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 me and from our company as well. It's yeah, we met our goals, but man, they can always use more, right? And what's the what's the website again? Alpha5project.com um, is is how you can you know you can see the videos from the jump and and all the stuff that we've done. Uh, and we, you know, did several interviews. We we're on Fox and Friends, Newsmax, Forbes, a few other things. But also, it's it's a way to directly, um, you know, contribute to the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. Sweet. Um, uh, yeah, that's really cool, man. I like uh, that. It's a it's a great organization. These videos are fucking crazy. So definitely, it's it's uh, Alpha and the Number Five Project dot com. By the way, you can watch the whole thing. Definitely go check it out. Um, and we gotta we gotta get moving here tell everybody where they can find you and all the stuff you're you've got going on yeah so i'm not like a big social media guy but uh but you can you can see what's going on in our company man always something cool going on with us uh os-rescue.com that's oscar sierra-rescue r-e-s-c-u-e.com we do have like an instagram and, and 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 a few other things but uh i i don't manage that stuff uh but always something cool going on you can check out our website it does have links to all of that and um you know we're we're kind of up to up to something new every month whether it's working the cool thing about our company is that we kind of are working with everybody from you know spacex to boeing sierra space space perspective that balloon that goes up the stratosphere we're always doing crazy tests and cool stuff with them so uh, that's where you can click on learn more uh, learn more and we're also um you know, providing jobs to folks with special operations background. So it's it's kind of unique to find somebody who can parachute out in the middle of the ocean. So, you know, there's a tab on our website to, to fill out the application. We also do skill bridge for military guys in transition. And we're a growing company. We hope to, uh, uh, you know, getting ready to build a new facility in Titusville. It's going to be about $80 million facility. And so we're growing. Uh, the company's thriving. And uh, I, w- I would also say, um, uh, you know, that uh, really – it's kind of one of those stories where the risk is, 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 is worth the reward, but, but you, you don't get into something like this without taking risk. And uh, this was one of those situations where I gave up a really good government job. And so did my counterparts, you know, gave up our jobs and we just kind of hit the, I believe button and we believed in each other. It was built on trust and we we're doing the right things for the right reasons. And uh, man, it's really paid off. And so I, I believe that it's going to continue to thrive as long as we surround ourselves by good people and keep doing the right things for the right reasons. Sweet, man. That's a great story. Um, glad that you were able to come on today and talk about all this. It's super fascinating, the the work as it transitions from, you know, government operations into the, I guess, technically into the civilian space uh, 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 uh business now which is nothing that's not something i thought was going to happen ever to be honest but here we are and it's super interesting so yeah if you're if you guys are interested in checking out um what brandon's got going on definitely visit those websites um and you know if you're a special operator getting ready to get out i know a lot of you are uh take a look at that that 
SkillBridge especially because you get six months now on the back end if you're putting in your paper. So definitely check that out. Thanks for coming today, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Anytime. Thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.